0: Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Hello and welcome to the Only One Business Show with me your host James Nathan and today in the studio I've got a great and fantastic guest for you. He's the author of The Startup Coach and The Franchising Handbook both published by Hodder, regular business contributor in the press, radio and also on TV and he's the chairman of the business advisory firm D&T. He hosts his own podcast, which I've got to pop a link in the bottom later, but he's absolutely fantastic. And he's now recently taken over the running of a National League South football team. Please welcome Carl Reeder. Carl, how, how are you? I'm great, thanks, James. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to have you on. I know you're a super busy guy, so it's so, uh, so, so really nice of you to take the time out. Carl, how did you end up taking over a football team or running a football team?
1: Do you know what it was completely by accident? So, I um, I I moved to the area in which I live, Hungerford, about two and a half years ago, and I knew they had a football club that was punching well above its weight. Right. Um, you know, I I picked up on this through um through yeah you know, just the football world um seeing just how high up they were. They were actually you know their results were being announced on TV, which is you know a big sign of a team doing fairly well. Uh-huh. And I didn't really know just how well above their weight they were punching until I looked at some of the teams they were playing. Anyway, um, if we park back for one moment, I responded to a call out on social media. And it was actually the manager of the team just doing a call out. Can anyone help, um, help us with the running of the club? So I picked up the phone to him. This was about a week after his announcement. And had a good chat with him. He was a really nice guy, but it was clear that the club was in a bit of a pickle. Um, and what I mean by that is, it wasn't in a pickle in so much as financially, although there's, um, but yeah, there certainly was a financial shortfall. Yeah. It was nothing like other clubs in the league. You know, um, the last set of accounts that Salford um, City, who've just gone into the football league, uh, put out, um, was when they were in that equivalent league, but in the north. Right. And they were in the whole by 2.4 million. Wow. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's a huge, a huge sum of money. Now, Hungerford, it was much lower than that, but still, you know, not an insubstantial amount. Um, so, so there were challenges. The chairman was leaving. The treasurer was leaving. You know, everybody was departing because they had been trying to juggle this club, having been reliant on a benefactor previously. So they wanted um, people to come in and just apply some business input. Now, a guy called Patrick Chambers, who I knew of, had already um, met with the team and agreed to become mm-hmm. chairman. And they, I, I got the feeling they were trying to crowbar me into being a treasurer. And yeah, you know, we'll probably talk a bit sure. about my background later. But I'm like, not a natural accountant, so I was like, no, no chance. You know, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, I'm allergic to that stuff. Right. Um, but like, I met the guys, and um, hopefully. They felt that there's something that I could add. I certainly felt there was something I, I could add, and um, I was invited to become vice chairman. So I, I've been involved in running it for, um, it's only been a few weeks, relatively speaking. Right. Um, we were um, picking up the promotion of the last couple of matches of last season, um, during which the team achieved a massive turnaround. Easter Monday, the team played in front of 5,300 in Torquay wow. and secured a win against the champions of the league. Now, to put that into context, the town itself only has a population of 5,500. <laughs> so so you can tell that this team are really um, playing out of their skin to stay at the level of football that they're at. Um, we managed to um, pretty much double the average gate on the last two matches, which was fantastic. We're really looking forward to going into next season with a bit of a bang, bringing in some corporate sponsors, bringing in more bums on seats, ultimately helping to build a culture around the team so that the players feel motivated to play at their very best, Mm -hmm. um, which in turn brings more people in, which in turn brings more sponsors and you know i've got this crazy vision of actually making a football club sustainable um you know it's a right. it's a not for profit club and i intend to keep it that way mm-hmm. um so rather than being um something with a golden goose at the end of chucking loads of money at it and maybe getting to a premiership actually I want to make it sustainable, I want to make it for the community, and I want to make it completely transparent. So it's been a great use of my energy recently, mm. and um, it feels like a natural extension of some of the charitable work that I've done before.
0: Fantastic. I love the kind of ethos you're talking about there. I, I mean, I, I'm i not involved with football clubs, I've been, been you know very involved with rugby clubs and um you see clubs that are have you know a nice membership good you know a, a good club try and do something out of the you know out of reality trying to become a premiership club for instance and it can really wreck the place it can change the whole feel and it's uh and it's really a shame to see that happen so something that's built there for the community i think is a fantastic thing this is it
1: the uh, community I, there's, there's two aspects to that first of all for the community that are aware of the football club, it's about making it sustainable so, it, so it's there for their children, their grandchildren and so on. Mm-hmm. However, there's um, there's this really strange irony that even though, you know, last match of the season, I think we got 580 through the gate. Um, plus we had some kids there who um, were actually attending an event before. So, yeah, you know, we, had, we had great numbers there. Normally we'd only have 220.
0: Yeah.
1: But there's... That's a that's a substantial percentage of the population of the town. Mm-hmm. However, a good proportion of the town don't even know they've got a football club on their doorstep. <laughs> so we've actually got a communications exercise throughout the town of Hungerford yeah. and reaching out to areas like Newbury, to Marlborough, to Wantage, to Andover. You know and, and really going outside of anywhere where there is a professional football team and let them know that actually you know, there's a there's a cracking team playing a really good level of football um, you know it's a, it's on, honestly it's on a par with South United my my own team but I support right. um, you know, they're playing a really good level of football and it, it's on your doorstep and it's actually the you know, they are the best and biggest team in West Berkshire.
0: Fantastic, and quite a trek from your your start in life because you, you you like me you went into accountancy and didn't like it or t- tell us what tell us how it all began for Carl Reader.
1: Yeah, sure. So I won't I won't go back right back to the midwife holding me up by my finger, I'll, <laughs> I'll start the, I'll start the story at year eleven of senior school.
0: That, that'll do. And that'll do.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, at year eleven, I received my national insurance card. Now, bear in mind, I was. Extremely privileged um, to be at a grammar school. So I was from a um, council estate upbringing, right. and you know it was, it was a perfectly fine childhood, but there wasn't much cash floating about. You know, my old man was a locksmith, my mum was a dinner lady. Um, yeah, you know, we weren't a particularly well-off family. Okay. Um, but anyway, I, I was at a grammar school, and yeah, you know, I was given all of this opportunity that you don't normally get. So, you know, I will defend grammar schools to the hilt when anyone complains about them because they really do improve social mobility and allow people to reach their potential. Um, however, I didn't realise that at the time. You know, like most 15-year-olds, I was more interested in, I'll be quite honest, drinking, smoking and girls. Yep. And uh, being at an all-boys school that was very strict and very disciplined, I imagine that was actually magnified. So by the time I'd hit year 11, you know, I was I was frustrated. I just um I just wanted to get out into the wide wider world. So I decided to leave school before my GCSEs right. and did a YTS in hairdressing. Now, for any of your <laughs> listeners who are um younger than me and have got youth on their side, yeah. they they might not know what YTS is. Um, so it's a youth training scheme. Well, I'm sorry, I was was
0: only chuckling because you haven't got a great deal of hair these days. No, no, you've
1: you've stolen my punchline. Oh, I'm Um. sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) But anyway, um, so I, I, I fell into hairdressing on the youth training scheme at 29 quid a week, working six days a week, and one of them had to be a late night, and... Yeah, you i know, I got £1.50 contribution towards my bus fares, from right. what I remember. Um, so it was slave labour. I was sweeping up and mixing hair dye and so on and so forth. And after six weeks, it was mutually agreed that it wasn't the job for me. Uh-huh. So I had to work out what to do. So I went back to school, did my GCSEs, and probably my results weren't representative of what I could have achieved had I stuck it out. Um, so if any of my kids are listening, you know, stay at school, just at least two exams are done. Um, we have to work out what to do. So I got the job paper, a game that dates me really well. You can, pro- you can probably tell that I was born in the early '80s from this. Got the job paper, applied for um, three jobs: one in the army, um, two accounting firms. I was underweight. I was underweight. Can you believe that, James? Underweight for the army.
0: I don't think I've ever been underweight, Carl. So. Uh... <laughs> no, no, me neither. But I, but I actually
1: got offered the two jobs at accounting firms. So that's how I fell into accountancy. It was completely by mistake. And you know what? I can vividly remember before my first interview at the first accounting firm, which was the job that I took on, um, funnily enough, they waited about two and a half months before offering me the job, um, which is normally a sign that they went through three or four other interviews and couldn't find anyone else or everyone else turned them down. Um, But I vividly remember being in the library beforehand and go into a book and researching right. what an accountant is. So that that will probably set the scene of how much I knew about accountancy and how much I wanted to be an accountant before yeah. going to the interview. Anyway, fell into it, realised pretty early on that I wasn't really cut out for accountancy. Um, and in fact, I had a LinkedIn message from my old boss, a guy called Andrew Clark. So Andrew, if you're listening, um, big shout out to you. He um, he he wrote me a message, something along the lines of, "I, to be frank, I'm amazed at how well you've done. Uh, when you joined us, you were a bit rough around the edges, but we soon knocked you into shape. <laughs> okay, so that that says it all. Yeah, you know, I wasn't a yeah, natural yeah. accountant. However, what I really enjoyed... Was meeting business owners. Right. So a couple of years in, you know, I I got off the books and started going out doing training for clients, training them on computer systems. Okay.
0: Um,
1: that then developed into um, starting to have sales conversations. That then developed into having to generate my own leads to have those sales conversations. That then, uh, that then moved into um, building a sales team, building a marketing team. Um, along the way, I also bought out the firm that I currently work at. Um yeah, yeah, that was, uh, when I say company work, I've actually stepped away 31st Jan. So I, do, I, I don't company work, but I currently serve as chairman. Right. Um, so I, I've kind of seen the whole process of um, building a business from... Know, seven or eight people right the way through to where it is now where we've got about 60 odd people um yeah we've built it to a few million turnover we're looking after some major high street brands and so on mm-hmm. um I've also along the way as you mentioned earlier I've written a couple of books written from papers been on tv been on radio in fact I've been on every paper apart from the Sunday sport um I've also in terms of um other businesses I've Founded and co-founded a few other businesses, mm. invested in a couple of businesses. So it's been a really interesting opportunity to satisfy the geeky curiosity that I have about business. Because, you know, it amazes me why people decide to do their own thing. You know, I've done it myself. Yeah. Um, but what amazes me more, James, is the fact that people don't do their own thing.
0: Why don't they then? Because I, I mean, I, I remember very firmly leaving accountancy to go into recruitment, and my dad saying to me, "Oh, I don't really know what that is, but you can still be an accountant if it goes wrong, can't you?" And I remember thinking, "Yeah, okay." And I went into recruitment, and then. You know, twelve years later, I, I left to set up my own business because I just desperately wanted to do that. I wanted to run my own thing. I didn't want to work for the guys I did. The firm had changed, blah blah blah. But, but people used to say to me, "Oh, that's a hell of a risk, isn't it?" And to me, it didn't feel like a risk at all. Um, you know. So I'm 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 sort of one extreme extreme, I guess.
1: Mm. Mm. Let me let me tell you my um hypothesis on it. Please. So I think that it's changed. It's changed recently and i'll touch on that in a moment and if i forget to remind me james uh, yes. but my my hypothesis on it is that the academic system is structured for the industrial age it's structured for employment right. it's structured to allow you to get a safe nine-to-five job added on to that we have the social conditioning which tells us things like you know you want to get a safe job for life mm-hmm. uh, you want to get a really nice office job uh you want to work in the professions Um, All of these things lead you towards the perception that safe employment is the end goal. Mm -hmm. Added to that, business studies um, tends to focus, certainly at GCSE level where I did it up to to a point, tends to focus on the 700 public companies out there with conversations about things like um, complicated share valuations and, and so on, rather than the practicalities of how do you start a business. Um, It shifted slightly because entrepreneurialism has become fashionable over the last five or so years. And um, also the startup culture since I would say um, certainly since 2010 ish um, has, has started to really ramp up as people have seen the likes of Facebook and Uber and so on. Yeah, they've seen millionaires and billionaires at ages far younger than they ever could have imagined mm. and, and it's seen as aspirational and fashionable and so on. So there's a there's a small element of the academic system that now focuses on that and quite frankly sets a lot of people up for failure because realistically they haven't got it within them to be a businessman, to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, instead they um, they might get funded, but ultimately will be employees of VCs, or probably more likely they'll work as analysts for VCs, but around the entrepreneurial space. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the big issues. The second is that as humans, we always overestimate the level of fear. And I think we need to combine with that the ways in which we're motivated as humans. You know, so You've you probably heard, James, of a carrot and stick. Yeah, yeah, you're course. motivated yeah. by uh, going towards the carrot or away from the stick. Most of us are motivated by going away from the stick. Mm-hmm. Now, combine that with the fact that most of us are externally validated rather than internally validated. Um, so again, for the listeners, internally validated are people who can give themselves a pat on the back. Externally validated need a pat on the back from someone else. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, I'm, I'm going to hold my hands up. I'm both externally validated and and are motivated by the stick Um, most people will think that entrepreneurs are motivated by the carrot you know they will go getters, and they they only satisfy themselves but you just need to look if someone's carrying a designer handbag or a designer belt or whatever they're externally validated Mm -hmm. Um, if they've ever done a school project last minute then they're motivated by the stick (laughs) and that sums up most of us in reality yes yes. the problem the problem is that combination of motivations will um, lead us to believe that entrepreneurship might be a case of public failure, which is the last thing that someone that's uh, that's externally validated wants. Um, Double that up with the fact that being motivated by the carrot means that you typically do the least possible to avoid getting sacked rather than the most possible to get promoted. Mm -hmm. Why would you do it? Then then there's the, um, the logical reasons that people use to back up those emotional reasons. And um, it comes down to, based on a survey of 300 people that I did, which is, it isn't statistically significant for the press, but it's reasonably significant enough to um, to announce here. Uh-huh. Um, it's based on my followers who are um, largely of a small business or a entrepreneur dynamic. Yeah. Um, primarily... Um, between 25 to 34, uh, 59% male, uh, 41% female. So that'll give you an idea of the kind of people who are responding. Uh Um, And the main reasons why people wouldn't do it uh, was based on um, money, time, and fear. Okay. That was it. So they felt they knew what to do and how to do it. They just didn't prioritize putting aside the money, putting aside the time, or getting over that fear
0: okay because you mentioned businesses boy. Well, you mentioned football team punching above its weight um there are a lot of smaller businesses who manage that as well um you know and i guess you've been involved with that with dnt picking up clients who you know on paper you wouldn't expect to to work with a firm of the size of yours but you're able to do that
1: oh complete completely so we've worked with um high street names you know we've um if if I talk through some of the brands we've worked with, Arsenal Football Club, um, we've worked with Dino Rod. Um, who else?
0: Well, that's enough. You, almost. I mean, they, they're big big entertainers.
1: Yeah, Squares Coffee House. Yeah, Squares no. Coffee Houses. Um, Metro Rod, Yeah, yeah. We we could list off um, high street names. You know, if you if you walk down an average high street and look at the shops, we probably worked with one or two of them. And that's on, a, that's on a head office level, not just the independent local level.
0: So where's the, where's the well, let me set, restart that question. How does a business who's small and entrepreneurial, who's really keen to develop and punch above their weight, how do they achieve that?
1: Okay, so there's a couple of reasons behind it. The first one was that I've always been a believer of picking your lane. Um, you know I'm always one to play to strengths rather than patch up weaknesses mm-hmm. and I feel that you you need to look for what it is you've got that you can add that's significantly different or over and above anyone else so my first niche industry i was handed to me when i um when I moved to swindon initially uh, to work at dT as an employee which was martial arts schools. So I was handed a bunch of twenty five to thirty martial arts schools, and um, built up to about two hundred twenty. Right. And it was simply a case of getting under the, getting it really under the skin of the industry, and getting to know the movers and shakers, getting to know who they shopped with, um, who their customers were. Um, I would ask them simple questions as well to build up my knowledge. You know, I wasn't afraid to show vulnerability. Um, but pretty soon I was able to go to a martial artist and, and walk into their school and know pretty much straight away exactly what their turnover was going to be, who their suppliers were, where they could save money, where they could make money, what extra things they could do, how many students they could fit into a room you know, based on square footage, all of that stuff. And I could, t- I, I could just instinctively know it within an instant. So I became so much more valuable than an accountant who was pretending to be an accountant because he wasn't doing the numbers. Right. Um, so instead, I was able to have really productive conversations. And I never sold. Instead, I would just help facilitate their uh, way of thinking by, by the use of effective questioning mm-hmm. to allow them to build their business within an hour and realise, you know, ho- holy crap, you know, they, they've actually got something massive on their hands that they haven't really maximised. Um, And we just did the same to the franchising sector. So with the franchising sector, I first turned up to a franchising event in 2004. And I just kept turning up because whilst there was other accountants there, none of them really got under the skin of franchising, really got into the fabric of it and and understood what value they could add to the relationship between franchisor and franchisee. Ultimately, it took us to develop bespoke software. Um, we had to develop bespoke ways of doing things, you know, different processes, different engagement letters, all, all kinds of different things to really satisfy our vision. We're not quite there yet. Yeah, you know, we've still got a long way to go in what we can uh-huh. offer, um, but we're now by far and away market leaders in that space.
0: So you talked before about the education system, and you talked about the way that people are set up and, and styles of different, you know, different kinds of. Uh, of, of types of people but when kids are looking at the at YouTube and they're seeing these guys making huge amounts of money what in a way which looks very very easy um, how does that conflict when you bring someone into your business and they've seen you know people earning quickly um, by calling themselves entrepreneurs does it make it harder to get those people to develop through your firm or do you have to be careful about the style of people you're hiring in the first place
1: Okay, so those who are susceptible to those kinds of videos is actually only a small proportion of a population. You know, I think we need to put this into co- into context. Possibly the um, the biggest entrepreneurial influencer at the moment is Gary Vaynerchuk. I would say, and you know, I think that he he's got both a very positive and a very negative message. Um, you know, it's certainly positive insofar as he's encouraging people to be themselves mm-hmm. and to do what they want to do. However, you could argue that it's also negative in terms of encouraging unhealthy work life practices at an early age um and also implying that rather than having talent, you just need to you just need to hustle and hustle will do the right. job now you and I know james that let let's say you know um you were a boxing trainer, and I came in, mm. no matter how much you train me and tell me to hustle and stick my left arm out, then my right arm out, I ain't going to go in the ring with Anthony Joshua and knock him out. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, uh, it's okay. been done. Although <laughs> although that, that Fat Mexican did, so it's <laughs> possible. It's possible. Yeah. You know, I, I certainly share the waistline.
0: But your, your, your point's really, really yeah. important. So
1: I think that it's a dangerous message that's being shared. However, I don't believe that a good proportion of... Um, the population are exposed to it at the moment. I think people who are exposed to it are actually looking for it. Um, so that's a really important point. You know, the kinds of people that are attracted to accountancy, uh, for example, aren't necessarily the kind of people who are attracted to entrepreneurship videos. Um, so that's that's the first thing. Um, but I think you've tapped onto something that's um, far more worrying at a bigger picture. So you've put Gary Vaynerchuk to one side because everything Gary does is um, building his personal brand, but he's not looking to make a quick buck from Mm -hmm. it. The really worrying thing, James, is those who are looking to make a quick buck from snake oil. And there's enough of them out there. You know, we see them on the Facebook ads and so Mm -hmm. on. You know, make £100,000 on Facebook overnight and... You know, it's just that that stuff is what drives me to do what I do insofar as my education, my speaking, my books, my columns, to really show people that, you know, you ain't got to spend £97, then 497 then £1,497 to go to various boot camps and so on. You know what? You can just get this stuff for free of charge and go to the library and read my books and just get on with it yourself. It's It's hard work, but it's not actually complicated. You don't need to pay for that advice. Right.
0: Now, I I find Gary Vaynerchuk absolutely fascinating because I I really like the guy. I think, well, actually, let me rephrase that. I really liked his early stuff. I thought his message was very sound. I think it's got slightly diluted by his ego, Um, but that's, you know, real Mm. personal opinion about it. But the first part of his life, working in his parents' liquor store... um, you know, there's, there's a hell of a business grounding that happened there. And I love the service side of it because he talks about looking after people who came in, getting to know people, trying to sell them the, the wines that they would enjoy rather than the wines that he can make a better profit out of. And that's kind of, for me, that's got the, the backbone of a really solid business. How does service fit in with, well, let's use D&T as an example, but how does service fit into your business? Okay, so
1: service has to be the centre of all businesses, I believe. Um, so not just D&T, but I'm also going to include the football club as a community interest company. Yeah. Um, so it applies to charities, it applies to community interest companies, it applies to um, big corporates and also the very smallest of businesses. I think that nowadays we're at a really interesting tipping point that... Um, hasn't really been picked up on by everybody, um, but there's certainly some who have. You know, in the in the past, James, we used to talk about um, Michael Porter's model yeah. of either being a cost leader, so being cheap and cheerful, mm-hmm. or being a product differentiator, you know, having something special about us. Um, in the age of AI and automation and machine learning and so on, you know what? In most industries, cheap and cheerful is unattainable for anyone but the most well funded Um, and that goes for whether you're a retailer you know there's always someone who can shift more boxes than you look at Amazon Um, that goes for if you're a service provider um, or it goes for if you're building tech so you you need nowadays I believe rather than just making a choice of where you're going to be you need to make a choice of actually how far down the service track you're going to go Um, you know I think that you've only got the product differentiation area to focus on nowadays Mm -hmm. So based on that, yeah, that would imply that service is an absolute must-have for the business. Um I would I would also just top that up by saying about the viral image that sometimes gets shared around LinkedIn and Twitter and so on. You you might have seen mm-hmm. it. Um where it says that you know you can have you can have it um you can have it good, you can have it cheap, or you can have it fast. Yeah, you can't have all three. Have you, have you seen yeah, that one? Yeah. You can pick two yeah. or three. Okay. Uh, well, my contention is that that's a load of rubbish, because quite frankly, Google is excellent. It's free of charge and it's instant, and it's Google and Amazon and so on. But we're being judged against yes. now. So, when we take, let's say, phone call response times nowadays, rather than the old, yeah, you know, if we look at if we now um, narrow focus on accountancy. The old school might believe that maybe returning a call within 24 hours is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're getting a Google result in milliseconds, yeah. twenty four hours isn't acceptable. Okay? People only phone you now if they if, if it's urgent, otherwise they send you an email. Yes. But Customer service in a lot of organisations, and and certainly the time spent by individuals, is more focused on emails than phone calls. Nobody ever emailed the fire brigade.
0: Oh, seriously! You're going to put. I'm going to jump on a horse and, and ride as high as possible. Uh, it drives me absolutely insane. I think that you know the 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 there is a there is a culture in society which says, um, you know, we can knock this out in an email. That's fine kids spend half their lives communicating with their thumbs on a on a little screen Mm. um and so it's all it's all kind of connected i think you know one of the things that i see in my business which which worries me more and more is the lack of training that's given to people in having phone communication you know we back in the old mean, i'm you talk about the 80s i was born in the 70s and um you know my my accountancy training had a, a module on business writing but, you know, when you sat at the desk, we had a, you know, you had your training partner or whoever was helping you say, right, OK, we're going to call a client. This is what we're going to ask them. This is how we're going to do it. Um, and you were taught handheld how to make calls and how to do that. And it's, it's absolutely, absolutely vital because there's a,
1: there's a bigger societal shift going on as well. Mm. Um, so nowadays we live in the stay at home economy. Um, not not so much for us too because you know we, we live out in the sticks but <laughs> certainly those who live in cities uh-huh. you know you picture the the day in a life of someone who lives in a city so they wake up um, now they might have a housemate that they're sharing with if they're um, just moving into uh, just moving into the uh, working world but you know let's say they live on their own they wake up their uber will um, arrive at the click of a button and um, pretty soon they won't even need to click that button there'll be predictive technology to identify when the uber's needed yeah they get in the uber they don't speak to the uber driver they go to their cubicle at work they work for eight hours possibly not speaking to anyone okay mm-hmm. they pop out at lunch and go to starbucks now the only time that someone has a meaningful conversation with them is when their name is asked at starbucks now, that's the reason why Starbucks ask for the name. It's part of their customer service because they appreciate that their customers might not speak to anyone else that day. Okay? Mm. They don't just do it to deliberately misspell your name, they don't do it for banter. They do it because they know that it might be the only human form of conversation you have. You go home, um, rather than going to a restaurant to eat, you'll use um, Uber Eats or Deliveroo or Just Eat. Um, rather than going to a cinema, you'll watch Netflix. And the cycle repeats, repeats, repeats. So, as a society, we're becoming isolated, mm. and unfortunately, that we're we're well down that path. Um, and so, I think you're absolutely right, James. That education on human to human relationships is vital because it's a saying I keep using. Um, you know, I I said it at my last keynote. Uh, the other day, and I'm, I'm sure I'll say it again a hundred times before this year is out. Business isn't B 2 B or B to C; it's H to H, human to human.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. My- Michael Gerber wrote the EMIF Revisited, mm-hmm. and. You probably remember that book. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most most accountants love it and think it's the Bible and give it to all their clients. Well, do you know what? Michael Gerber does a disservice to every business with one phrase that he uses in there. Okay. And it might have worked 15 years ago, but nowadays it's completely irrelevant. He contends that you can have ordinary people with extraordinary systems to have an extraordinary business. Do, do you remember that phrase? Yes,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: that's completely wrong. You know, nowadays to compete and to offer really good service, you need extraordinary people and extraordinary systems.
0: And it, I, you know, I, I well, I, I'd I'd argue that that's actually not now. That's been always been the case. Um, you know, if you tra- if you hire the very best people you can find, you train them the best way you can, you end up with a great business.
1: I think you're right. I think the commoditization of businesses over the last. 20 years. You know, you look at businesses who've tried to remove the human element um, to automate processes, to automate communications. Um, You know, they they've tried to actively get rid of human input wherever possible. Mm-hmm. And we're now rapidly trying to reverse it. You know, you can see Bigger companies having a human face to their social media nowadays. Um, you know, you can you can actually go onto Tesco's Twitter account and have a bit of banter with them, mm-hmm. and you will know the name of a person you're dealing with. Fifteen years ago, Tesco's would never have done that. It would have been an, an, an anonymous communication from a marketing department. Yeah. So I think that it's you know it's not just Michael Gerber who's done this. You know, Michael might have been responsible for a lot of small businesses doing it, um, but it's been across the board. Um, the value that a human can bring to a business was minimised and, you know, it wasn't thought of as important. And and I really do believe that humans are now coming back to the forefront and need to find their voice.
0: Well, there's got to be a backlash. I mean, I, 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 when you were talk, telling the story of, of the guy who never speaks to anybody, you know, I've had days like that myself. I'm in my little office in the garden. Um, you know, everything goes on. It's not till the kids come home from school or or Mandy comes back from her office that I actually end up talking to someone, and that leaves you in a very. It, you can end up very depressed because human mm. beings need your social interaction. It's part of our our. It's part of our makeup. Um, it is we're social and, beings. Yeah, and so if businesses. Address that um, and capitalise on it, then they become places people want to be involved with. Definitely. You know, who wants to go to a coffee shop and and someone just to stare at you till you speak? You want them to say, "Oh, hi, how are you today?" You know, are you going to have a coffee or are you just going to have a croissant or what do you? Exactly. You know, and uh, how are the kids and it's all very yes. Nice.
1: And it's it's those little touches that can make the difference between a business that is just average and a business that's fantastic. So. Um, Let let me share with you a couple of examples of where the human touch has really made a difference. Um, The first one was in a hotel that I stayed at last week. Um, So it's the Bullet Hotel in Belfast. Now, this hotel could very easily have been yet another travel lodge. Do do you know what I mean? The rooms were small. Um, It was a city centre location. I could have just gone in, um, been served by someone who... Not only didn't speak English, but more importantly, didn't want to speak English, just grunted and handed the key. Instead, yeah. um, they the um, reception staff were bubbly, very enthusiastic. They talked to me about the area. They talked to me about my stay. They had asked if I'd been in Belfast before. Um, so they, it felt like they got to know me. Okay, um, But mm. more importantly, when I went down about 10 minutes after going up to my room to dump my bags, they referred to me by name such yeah. a simple touch yeah it doesn't take much does it but what a lovely thing. exactly really nice the second one is um, a retail experience so this one i had um i'd stopped off at mister village so not not too far from you james um on route to mm-hmm. birmingham it was a beautiful sunny day about three weeks ago and I decided I was going to stop for one of their lovely little ice creams that they do. I don't, I don't know if you've been there, James, but you must if you haven't.
0: I I haven't been for a while because I used to live in Buster Okay, the years and years ago, um, and it became the scourge of my life. But I know it's it's grown and become much nicer since then. But so ice cream, ice cream always. If someone says it's a good ice cream, I'm I'm on it. There it is. So there's a Pierre Marcolini kiosk, and they're
1: about a fiver. Okay. But there's a little little ice these that are just. To die for and perfect in the sun. Right. Um, but the problem is, you know, when, when you stop and um, and do this in an area like Mr Village, there's not much else to do other than look at the shops. Um, and I had about an hour spare before I needed to be in the car to get to my meeting. So I had a look and I went into one of the shops. Now, to put it into context, this shop sells products between 750 quid and 3000. I bought something for 150 okay. quid. Okay, so I. Mm-hmm. I was, even in the outlet store, I was their lowest ticket sale of the day, I would imagine. And and, and it was on discount as well. So it was discounted um, half price from the outlet price. They were probably only making 50 quid at most profit on it. Um, So I went to the checkout. They got me to enter my email address into their system. And at the back of my mind, I didn't consciously think it. Um, I, I only reflected on this afterwards, but unconsciously I was thinking, "Oh no, it's an, another email I need to unsubscribe from because I'm certainly not spending yeah. 750 quid to free grandma." Anyway, the next day I received an email from the guy who served me, and how do I know that it was from the guy who served me? Um, first of all, yeah, he was um, he was Chinese. It was a Chinese name. Um, it wasn't from a mailing list. There was no visible HTML. There's no visible images. There's no unsubscribe link, um, but it was also in his wow. tone of voice. The English wasn't perfect, but it was exactly how he spoke to me in the store. Okay, yeah. and I thought, wow, you know, and it, and he wasn't. It wasn't a sales message. It was just hope you enjoyed your purchase and had a safe onward journey to Birmingham. Wow, how amazing is that? Do you know? And then it made uh, me. It made me. Fabulous. It made me think. Um, you know, that, that whole experience actually made me think of the only other time and the only other time I've had service like that, which was with Gucci at Terminal 3 at Heathrow about two years ago. Um, and, it, you know, the fact that both of those, you know, with Gucci, it was just a case of them sending me a WhatsApp message afterwards saying that I can text them at any time if there's a product I want VAT3. Um, so if I'm travelling, I can text them two days before and they'll make sure that it's there for me. Um you yeah, know, these two instances of customer service are so, so simple. So Gucci's would have cost them maybe a, um, a £5 a month mobile phone contract because it's just connected to their Wi-Fi, so they don't need any data. And just to remember to send a message after someone's been in the store. Um, this other one was just a two-line email. But it really set both of those apart from another luxury retailer um, which I won't name, uh, but they make you queue and fight and wait. Just have your name put on a waiting list to be served.
0: Yeah, I you know I love these stories. Um, there's so much we can draw from them in our lives, and there's so much we can take from them to put into our businesses. You know, when people talk, tell me mess- about these sort of personal messages. It, it lights me up because it's so nice. I had a similar thing with a with a fairing I bought for a motorbike once, and you just think, wow, that's lovely. But I've also had it on a 12-pound pair of reading glasses. Mm. Um, and when businesses say, oh, yeah, okay, that's great, but we haven't got the time or, you know, nonsense, you can, you just have to find a way. And if you can find that way, you can make people's day so much better. They love you.
1: This is exactly it. So um, so that brand I was talking about at first, uh, the 150-quid purchase, it was Bryony. Um, right. So they're you know, high-end tailors. You know, I don't wear suits nowadays, but if I had to wear a suit, there would have to be a compelling reason not to go to them,
0: <laughs> yeah. even though yeah. they would be twice the price, even at their entry, versus what I would normally want to spend. Well, you know, I talk about the only one all the time, Carl, and this podcast is called The Only One, and it's all, and that's the absolute point. If you had to choose from a very diverse market of the same things, how do you stand mm. out? You have to be the one that people want to talk about. Definitely. And there's a, there's another point to it as well, because
1: um, it got me thinking about my own businesses. And you mm. know what? It was, I, I was only a 50 quid profit at best and, and a non-recurring customer at that point. Um, I was probably a hassle. You know, if they added up the time I was in the store, um, the cost of a square footage, the cost of a staff member, cetera, they, they might have even made a loss because of how far it's discounted. But... Um, but clearly, the language within that organisation, as well the culture within that organisation, is all focused around what the customer could be down the line. How many people have you told that story to? Loads. Well, it's uh, so it's going to be on it's on one of my podcasts. It's been um, it's been on my social media to up to one hundred and thirty thousand people, and um, now it's going to go to millions who your show. <laughs>
0: Well, speaking of my show, it's, uh, it's so kind of you to take so much time out, Carl. I really appreciate it. And you've given us so many great things to think about as well, which is, which is awesome. What's the one thing, though? What's the golden nugget? What's the big thing you'd like the listeners to take away uh, that they can use in their businesses to make their businesses better today and better in the years to come?
1: Wow. Wow. for one thing. Um, yep. What I would say, and there's there's so many of them. Do you want me to focus it on a particular area, or do you want me to just go generally from a business perspective?
0: Up to you. However you like.
1: Okay. So let me share with you um, what I've observed over the years and years of working with thousands of businesses. Okay. I think there's only four elements of running a business, and it's really simple. You need to dream. Okay. You need to plan. You need to do and you need to review. Most businesses either think they can get away with doing this once and then coast along, or they don't do all of the parts. So either their dream is too big and it's unrealistic or it's too small. They don't then distill that into an actionable plan. Most importantly, they don't actually take action. They spend their time messing around with creative avoidance, waiting for the phone to call, or they don't check what they've done to make sure they don't repeat the same mistakes. And if you can just follow that simple model and make sure that that you cycle it, you keep going back. So once you've dreamt, planned, done, review, go back to the dream, go back to the plan, go back to the do, go back to the review. Go back to the dream, go back to the plan, go back to the do, go back to the review. Really simple. um, But those who implement, all four of those well, are those who have extremely successful businesses.
0: Fantastic, Carl. Thank you so, so much. No problem, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of the Only One Business Show and I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts and in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.